2: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
1: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman, and every story about to hear today has something to do with Christmas, and that includes the Retro Sponsor commercial. So Joseph Bonavino was not the type of person that one would think would make the national news year after year. Yet early on Christmas morning of 1946, the 39-year-old former featherweight boxer closed his Brooklyn Tavern, which was located at 423 3rd Avenue. He closed it for the day and did the same exact thing that he had done for the previous four Christmases. No, he didn't go to church or head home to his family. Instead, he drove straight to the Bowery of Manhattan, which back then was New York City's Skid Row. He hopped out of his car at around 5 a.m., and he stopped a half dozen men that were clearly down in their luck. After wishing the group a Merry Christmas, Joe placed several crisp new $1 bills into their hands, which really was quite a bit of moolah back then. They were shocked by his sudden generosity, and each of the men refused to accept the money. That's because they suspected that the bills were counterfeit. But Joe wasn't about to take no for an answer so he had the six men accompany him to the nearby Elizabeth Street police station where he explained to Lieutenant John Byron what he was trying to do. The officer examined the bills and Joe's identification papers and assured the men that everything was on the up-and-up. But he wasn't done handing out his money. With about $1,500 stuffed into his pockets, that would be about $17,500 today Joe was determined to give it all away to those that were less fortunate than him. And to make sure that everything went smoothly for the rest of the day, a detective named Joseph Cronacher was assigned to accompany this modern-day Santa Claus as he made his rounds. You would think that all the money would have been gone within minutes, but it really was harder to give away than one would think. First, the two men went to a homeless shelter at 18 Bleecker Street, where Joe handed each man $2 and a warm Christmas greeting. Then it was off to various missions, lodging houses, and other dives to hand out the gifts ranging between $1 and $5 to buy food, meals, and, yeah, booze. Quote, I celebrated with my wife, Emma, yesterday and gave presents to children in my neighborhood. Today, I'm taking care of the boys in the Bowery. By 9 a.m., his wad of cash had diminished to about 400 bucks. And Joe seemed to run out of places to visit so Joe and Detective Joe made a stop at police headquarters on Center Street and who did they find there a bunch of reporters let's face it you can't hand out wads of cash without the press taking notice but in this case the reporters proved to be quite helpful in suggesting additional places that he could visit by noon Joe had about $100 remaining and decided to call it quits this was the fifth Christmas that Joe had come to the bower to hand out money, you know, to those that were less fortunate than him, and he was satisfied with what had just occurred. He said, quote, of course I've never done it before on such a scale. News of Joe's good deeds spread quickly, and by the next day his story was told in newspapers all across the country. But Joe Bonavita wasn't done yet. He announced a couple of days later that he was headed right back to the Bowery on New Year's Eve to hand out, get this, another $1,000 in cash. He was accompanied by Officer John Burdick, but things didn't go smoothly this time around. A group of reporters followed Joe into a restaurant at 107 Bowery where he intended to give away some of his cash. A large crowd gathered outside the restaurant and started yelling for him to come out, which he did. The whole thing became unmanageable and Joe was forced back into the restaurant for safety and Joe became overly emotional so the police brought an end to his gift giving and took him to the police station. Basically, they arrested him. A doctor was called in and the next thing you know, Joe is at Bellevue Hospital, get this, undergoing a psychiatric evaluation. Years later, Joe would recall, quote, The first thing they did at Bellevue was take all my stuff off me. They threw my assets in a cigar box, and they threw me under a shower. Then they put me in one of those white coats. The next thing I know, some doctors asked me what day it is and who's president. So was he off his rocker? Not at all. The doctors at Bellevue declared him to be totally sane and released him in the early afternoon. Joe commented to a reporter, quote, Just because a fellow feels sad and wants to give money away, police think he's insane. It is discouraging. And that's the end of the quote. Discouraging possibly, but there was Joe back in the Bowery for Christmas of 1947 with $700 in cash to give away. Other than the patrolman assigned to accompany him, this time the police did not interfere with his charitable gift giving. At one point, he entered a local bar and purchased a round of drinks for an estimated 50 men, but he refused the drink that was offered to him on the house, claiming that he had promised his wife that he would not consume any alcohol. Hundreds of men gathered outside the bar, so Joe snuck off through the side door and took off in his sleigh, uh, I mean car. And in 1948, he was right back at it once again he created a mob scene as he spent four hours handing out $700 in cash to the Bowery's most desperate. Joe was then told that the police anchor club had prepared 10 baskets of food and toys for families back in his home borough of Brooklyn, which were to be distributed by reporters assigned to the Bergen Street station. So Joe asked to accompany the reporters as they went to hand out the baskets, and he generously gave each family $5. He was so moved by what he had witnessed that he said, quote, I'll never go back to the Bowery again. These are the people that really need it. But as they say, never say never. After the annual press coverage of his generosity you know, basically stopped, he still returned to the Bowery year after year, handing out thousands upon thousands more dollars. In November of 1949, Joe was handed a summons for the possession of two chance books that were found behind the bar in his tavern. Enter, and you could have won a portable radio, which back in the pre-transistor days must have been fairly large. He was ordered to appear before the Brooklyn Gambler's Court, and Joe insisted that the books didn't belong to him. You see, he had set up a gym, the Bonavita Athletic Club in his backyard in 1945 and that was done to help fight juvenile delinquency. He claimed that the youngsters were using the raffle books to raise money to purchase new equipment. Then the surprising news hit the papers on November 27th of 1952 that Joe would probably not be able to make it to the Bowery that year. You see he had lost sight in his right eye and he was to undergo cataract surgery. So he decided to do something very different this time. Joe posted a sign on the window of his tavern that promised candy to any neighborhood child that stopped by on Thanksgiving Eve. And he did just that. He gave away more than 250 bags of sweets. Now, Joe may have missed Christmas that year, but against doctor's orders, he headed down to the Bowery and handed out $600 on New Year's Eve. And this proved to be a really big mistake. That's because his eyes started to hemorrhage, and sadly, it had to be removed. In 1953, the press reported that he not only handed out money from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., but that he also gave away 35 overcoats, 7 suits, 4 pairs of shoes, and 12 hats. But as they say, cash is king, and this sudden shift in strategy failed big time. The men simply pawned the clothing for cash. Year after year, now blind in one eye, Joe continued his role as the Bowery Santa Claus. But one had a question where he was getting all his money from. Was the tavern business really that profitable? Well, the answer is revealed in March of 1959, and that's when Bonavita, who was 51 at the time, was charged with tax evasion. Joe faced up to 20 years in prison and $40,000 in fines. He owed the government $23,552 on an unreported income of $77,958 for the tax years between 1952 and 1955. That doesn't really sound like a big deal until you adjust it to inflation. That would be around $670,000 today. Whoa. So is it from gambling? Well, not really. Well, sort of. You see, he earned all of his extra money in the stock market. Quote, I invest in oils, railroads, coppers, aluminum, automobiles, and of course, glamour stocks. Joe claimed that he didn't report his profits because he's afraid that his wife would find out that he was playing the market. So Joe pled guilty to the charge and he paid all of the tax money that he owed before he appeared in court on March 27th for sentencing. Based on all of his charitable work, the judge placed Joe on six months probation and fined him to $2,000. Joe's lawyer asked that his client be given a few days to collect the funds, at which point Joe pulled a roll of bills out of his pocket and he paid the fine right there on the spot. 1965 would mark his biggest giveaway ever, $10,000 at various locations around Manhattan. At the end, Joe asked the reporter, quote, we had a good time, right? to which the reporter replied, Joe, we had a ball. The following year, 1966, marked the last time that the national press reported on his annual tradition. This time he gave away $700 that he quietly distributed to people that he called, quote, friends. He added, down and outers that used to be up. Bonavita, which I'm told means good life in Italian, passed away in 1971. And what a good life it was. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: If you've been wondering where the money is coming from for a permanent wave because you have so many extra expenses around Christmas time, here's a suggestion. You don't have to save up a lot of money. You can give yourself the most natural-looking permanent you've ever had for just $2. Yes, $2 for a Tony home permanent that will look just as lovely and last just as long as a $15 beauty shop wave. A Tony is guaranteed to last as long or your money back. And you'll discover extra thrilling advantages when you have a Tony. There's no frizziness whatever, not even on the very first day. No kinkiness, no dried-out, brittle ends. Instead, you'll have deep, luxurious waves that are silky, soft, and beautiful. And it's so easy to give yourself a Tony. You know, it must be easy when more than a million women use Tony every month. But see for yourself. Just get the Tony Deluxe Kit with plastic curlers for $2. Be sure to follow the simple directions and you'll find Tony is easy. Yes, easy as rolling your hair up on curlers, but the wave stays in for months.
1: If you had tuned into the NBC Radio Network on December 9th of 1947, at 11 a.m., you would have heard that commercial for Tony on this particular episode of This is Nora Drake. It was a 15-minute soap opera that was first broadcast on October 27th of 1947 and starred Charlotte Holland. It concluded its run on January 2nd of 1959 on CBS. As for the Tony Company, it was started in 1944 with a $1,000 investment by two brothers. They were Wishbone, how's that for a name? Wishbone and Irving Harris. Four years later, they sold the company to Gillette. Forget this: twenty and a half million dollars. If you're curious, the name Tony came from a common expression of the day. You see, if someone was very stylish, you would say that they were very Tony. The company grew so quickly because they had a great advertising slogan. Their print ads featured identical twins with the same exact hairstyle. One supposedly had their hair permed at a salon, the other with the Tony Home Permanent Kit. The ad asked which twin had the Tony and pointed out that you could either spend $15 at the salon or you could do it yourself for 2 bucks. In 1948, two caravans, each with three sets of twins, were set out to tour the country and promote the product. As black Lincolns pulling pink and white-striped Tony-themed campers pulled into town, the press and the crowds would just gather round in excitement. One group that was not thrilled were the professional hairstylists. The success of the Tony Home Permanent had cost them about 20% of their revenue nationwide. They began to organize and protest around the country. They even tried to get laws passed preventing the marketing of the product. Now, Here's what I think is the best part of the story. Enola Schumate, who is a member of the Oklahoma Board of Cosmetology, she arranged to have all six twins and their stylists arrested after they had a demonstration of the product in Tulsa. They were charged with demonstrating and lecturing on cosmetology practices without a license. But as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity, so the PR guys at Gillette arranged for the Tony Twins to be released on bail, and then they contacted the newswires to make sure that the story was spread nationwide. The beauticians clearly lost this battle, because at the end of 1949, sales had skyrocketed to 65 million kits being sold that year. Eventually, sales died off, and from what I can tell, the Tony Home Permanent is no longer being manufactured. In other news, on Christmas Day of 1920, the three children of New York alderman Frank J. Dotzler were caught trying to sneak a peek at Santa while he was delivering their gifts. That's a big no-no. So Dotzler dressed up as Santa, filled a pack with gifts, and decided to descend down their home's chimney. But unlike the real Santa, Dotsler's 340-pound mask got stuck about halfway down the chimney. She was forced to yell for help, and I'm sure those kids were listening. A bricklayer was called in to remove the portion of the chimney around Dotzer and the bag of gifts was just simply tossed to the ground. The moral of the story? Leave the work of heading down the chimney to the real Santa. Then, Santa Claus got himself into a bit of hot water in Burlington, North Carolina back in December of 1933. That's because he was handing out circulars without obtaining a license to do so. A personally, I'm a bit shocked that Santa would have to do this in the first place, since one would assume that he was quite busy getting ready for his annual Christmas run. Of course, you know this was during the Great Depression, so you know maybe he needed to supplement his gift giving in some way. Two sisters, that seven-year-old Juliet and nine-year-old Henrietta Stolper of Oklahoma, heard about Santa's predicament and decided that they needed to take action immediately. They had to get Santa out of jail before Christmas. The first thing they did is they hired a lawyer, who just happened to be their dad. His retainer was 10 cents per day, and he served papers upon Burlington Mayor Earl B. Horner by mail. The mayor ordered that Santa be released and sent a telegraph to the two girls apologizing for not acting sooner. Of course, children worldwide were also thankful now that Santa was free because the two girls had saved Christmas. And finally, there is a December 15, 1951 story of 8-year-old Jimmy Kirk. He told his friend Peter Rosinski, who was also 8 years of age, that no one, not even Santa Claus, could fit down his chimney. You can probably guess what happened next. Jimmy went up on the roof and headed down the chimney feet first. It wasn't long before he got stuck with only his head sticking out of the chimney. A house painter who'd been working in the neighborhood came and safely pulled Jimmy out. I guess that no one ever told Jimmy that Santa had a lot of experience with chimneys. No one is more of an expert than he is. Santa can get up and down any chimney. Yeah, some may be tougher than others, but he never, ever gets stuck. And before I bring this podcast to a close, I have one more thing that I'd like to share with you. It's really just a simple question. Keeping with the Christmas theme of today's podcast, what was the first hit song, and I mean really big hit, To mention Jesus in its lyrics. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about a religious song. Uh, This is just a song that has the name Jesus in it. Now maybe you're thinking Jesus is just all right by the Doobie Brothers, Levon by Elton John, or probably the first one to pop into most people's head is Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum, who many are surprised to find out is Jewish. But it's none of these. So let's hear a sample of the song.
0: Loves you more than
1: you will
0: know. Oh, oh, oh! God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for
1: As most people know, that Simon & Garfunkel song was from the 1967 movie The Graduate, although it was only a snippet in the movie, and the remainder was finished for their album bookends later on. It was a worldwide smash hit at the time, and it was the first rock song ever to win Grammy for the record of the year. Now, to be honest, I can't be 100% positive this was the first song to contain the word Jesus, but I did find an online database of songs that have Jesus in the lyrics, and this was the oldest big hit on that list. Last week, one of my students, hey, Sadie, uh, she mentioned to me how much she loved Simon and Garfunkel, to which I asked her if she knew how many albums they had created in total. Now, for a group that's had such a long-lasting impact, I mean, here's a teenage girl listening to them, the answer was surprisingly small. They made just five original albums together.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. I came across the Joe Bonavina story four days after Christmas last year, and I knew immediately that it would become my December podcast. Additional true stories just like the one that you heard can be found on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And in the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. You can like the show on Facebook, you know, just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast and, you know, it should pop up. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do it for free through iTunes, you know, or just about any other podcasting software. Lastly, if you've never done so, and I know I've said this many times before, please be sure to write some positive comments on the show page on iTunes. I've read that a lot of positive activity in the comments section on iTunes helps move the show up through their rankings, which of course, uh, you know, brings in more listeners. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Have a great New Year! Bye.